0: Hey, good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Life's Big Questions, God's Big Answers. You've got the outline for tonight, why is there evil, and uh, we'll take a look at this issue. We'll take a look at how uh, the Christian worldview makes the most sense when you take a look at what people believe regarding the nature of man, Uh, And when I talk about man, I'm using the term mankind, humankind, all right? So I may be politically incorrect when I keep talking about the nature of man, but understand I'm talking about both male and female, all of humanity, right? Uh, As we're taking a look at this, if you uh, take a look at your outline there, uh, at the bottom of the front page and on the back side, we'll take a look at the issue of uh, demonic forces, the devil and the like. Uh, the Christian worldview explains the supernatural realm because when you were here for our first session, we talked about uh, the Bible is reliable, it's the inspired and errant word of God. And then when we talked last week about origins, we talked about the supernatural realm. God, the super, part of the supernatural, created the natural world. So that's just part of what we believe as Christians, that there's a supernatural realm. What we're going to see is there's people who don't believe in the supernatural realm, and so when you talk about evil this question of evil it has got to be solved there's no demonic and then there's there's no sinful nature and so those worldviews have got a problem they have a problem trying to explain why is there evil in the world what in the world's going on all right just so you know in this day and age as you talk about the existence of the de- the devil demonic forces the sinfulness of, of, of humanity um, Christianity stands alone in in, in saying that we're sinful. Everyone else says, no, we're basically good, all right? But when you talk about the demonic realm, people may also look at you strangely, like you really believe that. For example, I remember doing a similar presentation at Pilgrim Lutheran uh, in Milwaukee here, and when I was done, a woman walked up to me, handed back the handout, and said, You're nuts. And so it was one of these things where it was like, wow, I, I couldn't believe it. And so afterwards, I talked to the pastor, and, and he, he told me, yeah, she comes to church every now and then, and she's just very skeptical. And she was very skeptical, obviously, that the idea that you believe in the supernatural realm. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Because I believe God's inspired and errant word, and what I read in God's word is what I see in God's world. And that's what we're going to finish with tonight. I'm going to show you evidence outside the Bible for the existence of demonic forces. So when people say there are no demonic forces, there is no supernatural, really? How do you know that? So it's one of those great questions to ask. How do you know that? Well, that's just what I think, and that's what a lot of people default to. That's just what I think. Okay, great. Do you you know everything? (laughs) Do you know everything that there is to know, and now I know that there's no demonic? So what if I show you the true story of the exorcist? I'm not going to show you the exorcist. What if I tell you the true story of the exorcist? What inspired the novel and, and the blockbuster film from the 70s? What if I tell you about a, a boy, not a girl, a boy who was possessed? And, and, and you get a chance to listen to the people that were there for the exorcism. When people go, oh, this is not true, it's fairy tale theater. Oh, okay. I mean, you choose to believe whatever you want, right? I can't make you believe anything. All I know is here's God's inspired and word that talks about the devil, both Old and New Testament. Jesus himself talks about the devil. So is he, lo- is he wrong? Is he lying? He's not. And what I read in God's Word is what I see in God's world. And when you find evidence outside the pages of the Bible that talk about the supernatural realm, that's important for us to bring to people's attention. Because as I pointed out in the first two weeks, there's a tremendous amount of skepticism, especially in Generation Z. And what you're going to find in Generation Z is there's a a great interest in the occult. There's a great interest in the occult. And so everybody's looking for answers. Everybody wants to know stuff. And so, yeah, why don't we dabble in occultic activity? Stuff that God prohibits in Deuteronomy 18, things like contacting spirits or trying to predict the future or cast spells. So all that stuff is prohibited throughout the pages of Scripture, but specifically in Deuteronomy 18, it's a very clear-cut section. And so when there's a a, a disbelief in this, ah, there's no supernatural realm, but there's a fascination with the occult. You can witness, you can talk to people, you can be online, you can be in person, you can point out this is what's going on, right? So our objective, if you take a look at the board, is we want to give you the key to witnessing in this day and age. In this day and age, the key to witnessing, that's what you want to be able to walk away with tonight as we talk about why is there evil, all right? Also on the board, take a look up here. Uh, I, I mentioned worldview, all right? I mentioned worldview. Some of you are familiar with that term because we've done studies before and we've talked about a worldview. But long story short, a worldview is the mental map everyone has. Everyone has a mental map, a worldview, right? The technical term for a worldview is the truth claims that explain the world and reality. So if you look up in a dictionary, what's a worldview? It's the truth claims that explain the world and reality. And so everyone has a worldview or a mental map that they make sense of things. And so, for example, if you look at the new Grace Commons and, and they've got the, the, the map of what the building is going to look like and what the rooms are going to look like, they're mapping out the reality of Grace Commons. And you can see how the buildings are going to lay on the ground and then what the rooms are going to look like. Right? And in a similar way, everyone's got a mental map that they make sense of reality with. And a map covers an area. And in the same way, all worldviews have an area. So if you take a look on the board, all worldviews start with an assumption. It's real simple. God is or God isn't. So I'm using a triangle under the Christian worldview, the triangle shape for the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We start with the assumption that God is. You've got to start somewhere. If we bring in a Muslim, they'd also start with the assumption that God is. Now, they don't believe that God is triune. We don't worship the same God. But they start with the assumption that God is as well. If we brought in a New Ager and they talked about their belief, they start with the assumption that God is. But again, we don't believe the same thing as New Agers. So you've got to start somewhere. Your map starts somewhere. If you go to a, a, a mall and you don't know where you're going and you find the map of the mall, you'll find a little dot or a star on the map of the mall that'll say, you are here. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You've got to start somewhere. So you, you've got to start somewhere. It's a presupposition. It's an assumption. And every worldview begins with that. Now, in in secular humanism, what some people call uh, uh, humanism uh, or just secularism, there's no God. So I put a slash through the triangle. There is no God. That's the starting assumption. So when you're talking to people, when they say there's no God, a simple question you can ask is, how do you know that? How do you know that? Or you don't have to quote scripture. You can just say, well, how do you know there's no God? Have you been everywhere? Do you know everything? Uh, Because that's a powerful assumption to begin with. Assumption A in our area, acrostic, is followed by R, reality. I put a square and a circle in the Christian worldview. We believe in a natural and a supernatural realm. The natural realm is, is pictured by a square. Why? There's four points on the compass north, south, east, west. There's four points or four sides on a square. If you take a look at artists in the past who would do uh, murals or, or mosaics, when they would have for example in a church holy people that blessed and benefited the church if when the artist was making the painting or the mosaic and that person was alive they would put a square or a, or a diamond behind their head and that showed that they were alive they were still on this earth the square or the diamond for like the four points on the compass north south east and west but if the person was dead they would put a circle behind their head and later, you can see the halo concept from that. They are now in in a supernatural realm. They're in heaven. It's an eternal state. There's no beginning and no end, just like a circle is no beginning and no end. And so we believe in a natural and a supernatural realm. You see it in the very first verses of the Bible, Genesis one one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see it in the very first passages of Scripture. There is a supernatural and a natural realm. Now, notice in the secular humanist category, what's their reality? There's just a natural realm. There's just stuff comprised of atoms and molecules, that's it. So that's why last week when you're talking to people and they say, well, I think there was a ball of matter, and it exploded 14 billion years ago. And then eventually everything cooled down and formed what we see here today. And then life came from lifeless matter, scientifically impossible. Uh, Law of biogenesis, remember? How many of you remember that? Law of biogenesis, good. All right, add two to your score, okay? Just add two to your score right there. All right, you got it, extra credit. And, And so lifeless matter came to life. And then billions of years went by, and and now here we are, all right? From goo to you via the zoo, all right? And so it all happened against the laws of science regarding mutation and the like, right? There's no evidence of it, but that's the theory. And what's fascinating is there's just matter. So when you talk to them and say, where did immaterial thought come from? You can't touch thought. Okay? You could touch my brain. You could cut into the brain or the skull right now. You could touch my brain. But you can't touch thought. So there are immaterial things. There are things not comprised of atoms and molecules, like thought, logic, for example. And so when the secular humanist goes, there's just a natural world, you go, really? There's stuff that we can't touch, but it's there, it's real. Mathematics? Laws? And then you get to ethics. I put a goalpost there, all right? When you watch, and and we could use a target, we could use use a basketball hoop, we could use a, a soccer goal, it doesn't matter, right? Anywhere where there's a target, and when you can tell something's good or no good, all right? There are moral absolutes that God has set up, and he has said there are things that are good, all right? Love one another. Honor your father and mother. Do not steal, all right? So it's either good or no good. You're either doing that or you're not, and it's not hard to tell. But when there's no God starting assumption, notice the slash through the moral absolutes. There are no moral absolutes. It's moral relativism. We just decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. We just decide for ourselves, because there's no deity to go, thou shalt not. We just decide for ourselves. Finally, you get to answers, and there's a ton of answers that worldviews have to give. There's all sorts where do we come from? Why are we here? What happens when you die? Why is there evil? That's what we're gonna focus on today. Why is there evil? So all worldviews have to answer that. Now if your worldview doesn't answer that very well, people crumple that map up and they move on. They look to something else, they go, ah, this doesn't make any sense, all right? And what you're gonna find in Christianity is a coherent set of answers to big questions. Why are we here? Where do we come from? What's gonna happen when we die? Why is there evil? You're going to see that when we go through this outline today and then when we watch the 20-minute video at the end what's fascinating in secular humanism for example they can't answer this and what I love about the documentary I'm going to show you from a and Network on the true story of the exorcist at the end of the video there's three guys who were not there when that boy was possessed and they give their three answers to why what happened happened and they have natural explanations because they've already disavowed the supernatural And what you'll see is they don't make sense. I know what you're saying, but it doesn't fit what happened. And that's why I put a question mark there for answers when it comes to why is there evil. You've got the blessing of God's inspired and errant word. You've got the indwelling Holy Spirit. And you have an opportunity to make an impact. Because there's people out there that are walking around with maps that are no good. And that's the key to witnessing. Show them the gap in their map. Show them the gap in their map. Show them what you believe does not match reality. What you believe does not match reality. Let me give you the map, all right? And one last thing on the far side there. If you get God wrong and you get the nature of man wrong, you are in deep trouble because none of this is going to make sense on the planet. If you get God wrong and man wrong, you are in deep, deep trouble, all right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the opportunity to gather here. We pray a blessing on this time that we can understand what you're saying in your word, but also understand what's going on in your world. Lord, I pray that we'd also be bold and be able to open our mouths and talk to people and just ask them questions and help them to think that they might come to know you by the power of the Spirit as Lord and Savior. We thank you, Jesus, because you've loved us and given us this opportunity. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again as you're taking a look at the key to witnessing today the only thing that's not on the outline there the key is show them the gap in the map the disconnect between what they believe and what they experience what they think and what they find out as they live their life as they go through their days if you take a look on the screen if you look at that picture cursed world christianity tells you that yeah this world is under a curse after Adam and Eve sinned cursed is the ground right and there are all every one of us that is sinful we're gonna take a look at this and so that's why you look at the images on the screen there and you see an explosion you see 9-11 you see a gun you see a person in prison and and we could do this presentation in in Africa and we could talk about Hutus and Tutsis and people tribes that hate each other and there's evil there why is there evil And we could listen to the people talk about the necklacing that goes on between the Hutus and the Tutsis and how they'll take a tire, put a tire around someone's neck, doused with gasoline, and then light that tire on fire. And the smoke will kill them and the flames then will burn their body. Or we could go to Japan and talk about their relation with the Chinese and we could, we could hear the hatred and the animosity between the Chinese and the Japanese. And we could go on and on and we could go all over the world and you could understand, wow, it's just what Scripture says. There is no one who does right. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we're the only worldview that says, you know what the problem is? You know why there's evil? It's just look in the mirror. It's every one of us. We're fallen. All the other worldviews say, no, we're basically good. We're basically good. Really? Well, why do those people practice necklacing there? Why this animosity between the Japanese and the Chinese? And goes on and on and on, right? Secular humanism basically says this. What is man? What's the nature of man? We're basically good. Neutral at worst. We're just a blank slate. We're a tabula rasa. We're just a blank slate that society writes on. We're basically good and neutral at worst. Really. Abraham Maslow, the guy on the screen, the psychologist is very famous. He says this quote. Take a look at it. Since our inner nature is good or neutral rather than bad, it's best to bring it out and encourage it rather than suppress it. It's, if it's permitted to guide our life, we'll grow healthy, fruitful, and happy. See, we're basically good. We're not bad. So you should just do whatever you want, all right? Uh, when you take a psychology class in high school and in college, you'll hear about Maslow and his hierarchy of needs. Raise your hand if that's familiar. The hierarchy of needs? Yes, many of you are familiar with it. And the very capstone of the hierarchy of needs is self-actualization. Do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. Whatever floats your boat, whatever pops your cork, that's what you ought to do. That's what life's all about. When asked about evil, here's what Maslow said. As far as I know, we just don't have any intrinsic instinct for evil. Where do you live? (laughs) Because I'm moving there. When I'm talking to people and and they say, I think we're basically good, I do not quote Scripture and I think I've shared this with you. Don't quote Scripture right away. You do want to bring Scripture to the table, but don't lead with it. Only one-third of Americans believe the Bible is the inspired and errant Word of God. So you'd be smarter to do something like this ask a question, get them to think about their presupposition, their starting assumption, their ideas, and then bring Scripture to the table and let God the Holy Spirit go to work. So when people say to me, well, I think we're basically good, I just ask them this question. Do you lock your door at night? And they'll go, yes. Why do you lock your door at night? We're basically good. You don't have to be worried about anything. Why don't you just leave your phone out? Why don't you just leave money out? You know no one's going to take it because we're basically good. You know as well as I that that phone and that money would be gone in a heartbeat. So that's the gap in the map. And that's the best way to witness today. Know what they believe and then show them the disconnect, what's wrong, what doesn't fit with what they're saying and what they actually experience. That's the key. Then you bring Scripture to the table and you can quote Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do that, all right? Maslow says this, why is there evil? Well, sick people are made by a sick culture. Now, think about that. We make up the culture. If the culture's sick, well, we must have been the sick ones who made it, all right? But this also leads to what you're seeing today the idea of, I'm not responsible for anything, it's those people's fault. It's their fault. Things would be better if it wasn't for those people. That's why you're seeing this today. One of the reasons. There's a shift in in responsibility and you pin the blame on somebody else. Well, I didn't create this society and those people must have screwed it up. So they're the only bad ones on the planet. You're good. It's not what you see, all right? Now, when you talk about this question, why is there evil? Some people bring up, well, I think evil proves there's no God. It's called theodicy, all right? It's this great stumbling block. and I mentioned it with Gen Z last week. Generation Z, one of the three stumbling blocks is the the problem of suffering and evil. Why is there evil? Because there's evil, it must mean there's no God. Because if God exists, he would fix things. He would help. He'd do something. Because evil still exists, that means there's no God. Well, wait a minute. Before you say that, think about this. You could flip that discussion. When people go, because there's evil, that proves there's no God. Just flip it and go, well... Doesn't the existence of good prove there is a God? So on the screen, there's two little boys, and one's helping the other. Doesn't that prove that God exists? There's good. He's helping his friend out, tie his shoes. So just because there's evil doesn't mean that there's no God, all right? When you're talking to people, sometimes you can have this discussion, you can do it like this, all right? Why do bad things happen to good people? Or it might sound like this. Why Why do good things happen to bad people? ask for definitions. some of the three best questions you can ever ask people when you're talking to them either in person or online is what do you mean how do you know what if you're wrong what do you mean how do you know what if you're wrong so what do you mean by good why do good things happen to bad people why do bad things happen to good people what do you mean by good define good here's what you're gonna find you know what God says there is not a good person here we're all sinners we all fall short of the glory of God God's not looking for good people. He's looking for perfect people. And there's no one perfect. And that's why God goes, My son had to be perfect. Because if you want to come into my presence, the entrance requirements are perfection. You're not getting in if you're 99%. He goes, You've got to be 100% perfect. And you and I are not. And that's why Jesus is perfect for us, active obedience, keeps the law perfectly, and then he pays for our sins. Passive obedience dies, suffers for us. And so now we can enter heaven because he gives us his robe of righteousness. He gives us his perfection. Now we can enter in. So ask people for definitions. What do you mean by a good person? What do you mean bad things, good things, all right? So let's understand when people are bringing up this argument, well, look at the evil. That means there's no God. Not necessarily, right? Notice they're already using a standard. Let's go back to the goalpost illustration. They're already using a standard. There's evil things that happen. There's good people. You're using a standard. So now, if you understand there's evil and good, there's got to be some kind of way to differentiate. So if I bring in Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler, I think it should be pretty easy for us to go, good. Evil all right. No one's perfect understanding Mother Teresa is not perfect, but you'd kind of go well I'd push her on the good side and I'd push Hitler on the evil side, right? But notice there's got to be a standard a distinction between good and evil, right? Whoop going the wrong way if there's a standard if there's a way to differentiate between good and evil there has to be some intelligence that made that standard why is there a distinction between good and evil? Remember, if there's a ball of matter that exploded 14 billion years ago, where did thought come from, and where did a moral code come from? So think about that. You can, when you're talking to people, and they, well, evolution's true, there's no God, there's just, nat, just this nature, there's just material. Where did morality come from? I can show you moral foundations theory. There are five moral codes that are common in all cultures across the planet. Why is that? The Christian can explain that. The law is written on our hearts. Romans 2, 14 and 15. That's why Joe Gentile out there, someone who's living in the middle of nowhere, who has no access to God's word, instinctively knows there's certain things you do and certain things you don't do. There's these five moral codes that are common in all cultures. Huh, why is that? Where did it come from if there's no God? The law is written on our hearts. There's got to be a lawgiver. So, in the end, the argument that there's, there's evil, that means there's no God, no. That's, that even argues that there is a God. Because why do we know there are certain things you just don't do? You don't take someone else's stuff, you don't kill. And that's common through cultures. And they're not all quoting Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments. So, as you and I are talking to people, it's important to understand that, right? But let's think biblically, let's think biblically, and let's understand evil. If we're going to talk about why is there evil, let's just define it first, right? By definition, evil or sin is missing the mark, right? How many of you have ever shot archery, shot arrows? Okay, good. How many of you have thrown uh, uh, darts? Okay. So if, be honest, how many of you have ever either shot an arrow or thrown a dart and totally missed the target altogether? Yes, I've been there too, all right? We used to have a dartboard in our basement growing up, and it was just a concrete block wall, all right? And, and sometimes our metal-tipped darts would miss the uh, uh, target, and it would, it would hit the, the, the concrete wall. And sometimes it would spark. And always, oh, it was always fun to turn off the lights in the basement and try to make the dart spark. <laughs> now, what's really bad is knowing where your brother or sister is in the dark when you're throwing the dart. So just get down. Here goes. <laughs> yeah. Oops, sorry about that. That'll scar over. So, um, uh, so the concept of missing the mark, I think all of us understand, right? I was going for the bullseye, and I missed the target totally, and I hit the wall, and the spark hit. That's what sin is, missing the mark. When the Roman soldiers would shoot target practice, they'd have a spotter near the target, and when the target would be missed totally, the spotter would go, Hermitia! The Greek word for you miss the mark. Sin is missing the mark. So here's the mark. God sets up the moral goalpost. He goes, Don't steal, love one another. And what do we do? We miss the mark. We're left or right or short or whatever. And so what's evil? It's not obeying God's will, all right? Sometimes it's a sin of commission. We commit something. God doesn't want us to do. You can eat off any tree, Adam and Eve, just not that one. It's a sin of commission. Sins of omission are not doing what God commands. I want you to love one another. I ain't loving that person. Okay, you've missed the mark. You're outside of God's will. When we judge sins, it's funny to do that because in the end, a miss is a miss is a miss. You miss by an inch, you miss by a mile. It's a miss. But for some reason we go "Ooh, they were so close at least it wasn't really really off mark and so when i steal a dollar well it's just a dollar but if i stole a hundred dollars oh that's really bad a miss is a miss and that's to understand that sin is sin and you've heard it said jesus says but i say to you And I love that when you read that in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount's all law, it's meant to drive us to the foot of the cross. You've heard it said, but I'm telling you, by the authority that I have as God Almighty, if you say to your brother, you raka, you empty head, an Aramaic put down. (laughs) They had put downs, they had had, uh, ways to tear each other down just like we do. You airhead, you empty head. He goes, You're in danger of the fires of hell. Oh, you didn't commit murder but I'm telling you if you're bad-mouthing somebody you're in deep trouble but I just missed a little bit Jesus I just called him a name I didn't cut his throat I just cut him down you missed and that's why what's the problem why is there evil God goes look in the mirror kid it's all of us not a perfect person on the planet right so let's understand this biblically why is there evil First off, understand there was a creature that God made, one of his angels, a cherub, called Satan. And his fall into sin is the reason there's evil. Was he evil? Did God make him imperfect, fallen, the problem right away? No. Now, I mentioned this in question and answer time last week, and we're taking a look at it now. In Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, there's two passages in the Old Testament that Bible scholars believe are prophecies not just about an earthly king, but about Satan himself. And so the king is being addressed by Ezekiel and Isaiah, and the king is being compared to the devil. Because when you read these sections, they don't fit a human being. And the Ezekiel 28 passage is probably the most clear. Because it's going to talk about you are a cherub, which is a type of an angel. You were in the Garden of Eden, and then you sinned and you were driven from the Lord. Take a look at Ezekiel 28. Son of man, nickname for Ezekiel, take up a lament, a, a, a sorrowful word concerning the king of Tyre. So Tyre is a city uh, on the Mediterranean coast, and say to him, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Now, you're, this is the comparison. King, you remind me of the devil. You are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, carnelian and chrysolite and emerald, topaz, onyx and jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. Watch this. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence, and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart, watch this, became proud on account of your beauty. And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor so i threw you to the earth i made you i made a spectacle of you before kings that's no mere human because this person was in eden was perfect from the day they were created and they were a cherub a type of an angel and so there's bible scholars who go i believe this king is being compared to the devil and notice, perfect from the day he was created till wickedness was found in you. What was the wickedness? Well, I'm so good. Why am I listening to you? Why can I do whatever I want? Look at Isaiah 14. So here's Isaiah talking to a king. The king again seems to have an attitude, and God is saying through Isaiah to the king, "You remind me of someone I used to know who used to uh, someone I know who used to work for me. How you've fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn." morning star when you look at the horizon on a bright clear morning before the Sun comes up the morning star will come up any astronomy majors with us do you know what the morning star is it's Venus Venus is the morning star All right. so if you get on an early morning when it's clear up before the Sun comes up you'll see Venus on the horizon the morning star it's not a star it's a planet highly reflective highly reflective planet so it looks like a star you will see Venus on the horizon and then the Sun comes up all right so Venus the morning star always rises all right and then the Sun comes up so God is being ironic going hey morning star Venus look how you have fallen how you fallen from heaven morning star son of the dawn you have been cast down to the earth you who once laid low the nations you said in your heart I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of heaven, of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. In this prophecy, he goes, Morning Star, instead of rising, (laughs) you're falling you talk tough and you said i will i will i will five times last one i'm gonna make myself god really no <laughs> you've been cast down all right but you've been brought down to the realm of the dead to the depths of the pit so where did evil come from god goes well i made everything in heaven and on earth colossians 1:16. by him all things are created whether in heaven and earth whether visible or in invisible so he made angels sometime in the six days of creation nobody knows which day it's can't be that important that's why god didn't tell us so we go okay and everything was very good remember everything's fine and that ezekiel passage is clear you were perfect from the day you were created and then wickedness was found in you what was the wickedness the willful choice of satan i don't want to do god's will i want to do what i want to do i'm gonna be the big cheese and god goes no i'm sorry you can't be so he rebels no one tempts him he just flat out rebels and that's it and then eventually he tempts adam and eve when people don't believe this they go you really believe in the demonic realm well yeah i can show you and if you need more i can give you an outline that talks about angels and demons and and scripture passages both old and new testament so we can bring up uh, James and Paul and, and John and Peter and Jesus talking about the reality of the devil. And when people go, I, really, come on, you know, like that woman at Pilgrim Lutheran, you're nuts. Fine, you can call me nuts, all right? But what do we do when we encounter these things outside, when we encounter these things in real life? The book on the screen, I'm Not Afraid, by Robert Bennett, is published by Concordia Publishing House. So, Pastor Bennett served as a missionary in Africa, and he talked about his experience with the demonic in uh, Africa when he was there. And he says, if you read the book, normally when the person was demonized, demon possessed, it would manifest with them flailing on the ground and reacting to the things of God, the name of Jesus, the Word of God. When he says, I teach seminarians, peace, people who are, are planning to be pastors, and they they hear about this he says it's a very fascinating reaction when you have seminarians who are coming from the West like the United States and those who are coming from other parts of the world who are familiar with spirituality and the, and the idea that there's a supernatural realm take a look at this one quote pastor Bennett says this the African and Asian students spoke of similar stories of exorcisms and demon possession many of which include exorcisms that they had performed during their ministries at home on the other hand, the American students had no frame of reference for such stories except those produced through horror movies of Hollywood. This was a clash of worldviews among good and faithful Christian students. I love this quote. It's a clash of mental maps. And these He says, these are good and faithful Christians who are studying to be pastors, and those Americans could not get past this in their mental map. What I've grown up with in a Western society is, there's no supernatural. There's just a natural world. So I believe in God, which is supernatural, but I don't believe in the demonic. And I don't believe in in possession. And anything that I've experienced is by Hollywood. We have to understand, we absorb so much, like a sponge, we just soak this stuff in and we get exposed to it through movies and comics and television, through, through museums and through internet, and we just soak this stuff in and we don't critically think. I love 1 Thessalonians 5, test everything. Hold on to the good, avoid every kind of evil unite that's hard to do test everything you're watching something you're reading something you test it with the word of god if it's good use it if it's not you go i i don't believe that it doesn't fit god's map so i love that quote he goes the african and asian students totally understood a supernatural realm the idea of exorcism he goes those american students were so used to hollywood it was ah really yeah What's fascinating is this. Milwaukee Journal Sentinel years ago had an article on exorcisms on the rise. Huh, go figure. They pointed out that just the New York Archdiocese of the Roman Catholic Church, just the New York City Archdiocese, does about three exorcisms a year. Now, when you read the article, and you're going to hear a little bit about this when you watch the video clip from a e What the Roman Catholic Church does is, if someone is suggested to them that uh, this person needs an exorcism, the the uh, priest will check the person out physically, send them to a doctor. If there's a physical problem, they'll send them to a doctor. You need treatment. You need medication. Whatever. If there's a psychological problem, they'll send them to a counselor. They'll send them to a psychiatrist or psychologist. They weed through the candidates for exorcism. If it's a physical problem, doctor. If it's a psychological problem, uh, then, then a psychologist or psychiatrist. And when those are exhausted as far as what's the problem here, then and only then do they do exorcism. So just in the New York Archdiocese, they average about four exorcisms a year. It'd be fascinating to talk to those in the roman catholic church talk about these other archdioceses in the united states just in the united states now we don't hear this but if you listen to christians in other denominations they'll do exorcisms too sometimes they're called deliverance ministry they won't use the roman catholic rite of exorcism you'll see that in the documentary here in a minute so it's not in latin there's not certain rituals you got to do so there's people who do deliverance ministry. That's what they'll call it. Uh, when I was at Milwaukee Lutheran High School as a student, I remember we would have guest pastors in to do, do chapel every now and then. And Pastor Musser from Our Redeemer came in, Our Redeemer Lutheran in Wauwatosa. He came in to do chapel and talked about an exorcism that he was a part of. He said it was fascinating to do this exorcism Because as I was reading scripture over this person and trying to cast the demon out, the demon spoke through this person and said, Who are you to tell me what to do? I know about that test you cheated on in college. And he brought up information that no one else knew about, that this man had cheated on an exam in college. And Pastor Muster said it, it, it stopped him dead in his tracks. This spirit was trying to stop the exorcism and was trying to divert his attention by bringing up sin in his life. I know about that sin that you did. And eventually Pastor Musser got back online and got back to what's going on. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. And I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to leave, and leave now. It's not in the ritual. It's not holding up a crucifix like in a vampire movie. It's not holding up a a, a wafer from communion. It's the power of God that expels Satan. And that's what you and i have to know and so when people go i don't believe this i don't believe this fine don't believe it but what i read in god's word is what i see in god's world and so as we close out this portion before we get the documentary why is there evil well we kind of hinted at it already the other part of that answer is then satan tempted adam and eve to sin and they missed the mark Adam, Eve, knock yourself out. you got a whole garden to choose from. You can eat whatever you want. Not that tree. If you eat it, you will die. In Hebrew, dying, you will die. So what do they do? They listen to a liar and the father lies. Matthew 8, Jesus says. That's what Satan is. He's a liar and the father lies. When he lies, he's speaking his native tongue. What does he say? You're not going to die. You're going to be like God. So she eats it, and then she gives some to her husband who is with him, with her, and he eats it. And they realize they're naked. And some of the saddest parts of the Bible, God comes walking in the cool of the day, and they can hear him. And he goes, where are you? We used to hang out. Where are you? God's been looking for us ever since. He's been looking for all of us ever since. That's what Jesus said. I came to seek and to save the lost. He told that to Zacchaeus, and that's what he's saying to you. I've been looking for you, and I'm so glad I found you. Now, would you help me go find other lost souls? That's your job. You've got a job to do, and you can do that. And you can, you can break the ice. You can bring these questions to the table, because Generation Z isn't even thinking about this stuff start the conversation. Just heard about the occult the other night. Just talked about the true story of the exorcist. Have you ever heard this? That's your opening to let God the Holy Spirit go to work as you open your mouth. We're the only worldview explaining the fallen nature of man and why everywhere you go, anywhere you go, you're going to see this stuff. Clear in Scripture, Jesus says, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, He says, it's not what you eat that makes you evil because you're already evil, all right? Romans 3, Paul says, as it's written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. And Paul goes on, if you keep reading through verse 18, he's stringing pearls. He's stringing pearls. Ladies, if you've got a string of pearls, it's pearl after pearl after pearl. And what he's doing, he's using a technique of verse, 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 verse. And all he does is he quotes, 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 quotes. He's just stringing pearls together going, check it out, check it out, check it out, check it out, check it out. Here's what God says about us. We're fallen. The rest of the world goes, ah, we're basically good. Where do you live? But here's the good news. Romans 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus law we've all sinned gospel and we're all redeemed through christ okay what you're going to see in the 20-minute documentary is from a e channel the program is called the unexplained now the episode goes on longer than the first 20 minutes but i'm just going to show you the first 20 minutes and they're going to interview the guy on the screen william peter bladdy who wrote the exorcist what did he do he heard about this case he interviewed people, and then he wrote a novel called The Exorcist. Then it became a movie, and then there was sequels after that and, and the like. They're going to interview people that were there, or people that were near to the people that were there, and they're going to do re- recreation. So obviously no one is there filming this actual stuff. It's all recreation for the documentary, okay? So let's take a look at uh, the DVD, The Unexplained.
1: of time in Square, like mad for the where moments refuse to die this is a momentous hour in world history this is the invasion of Hitler's Europe and where victory lives on you can love it hate it embrace it or turn away There we go. people feel haunted by what they call evidence of evil forces in the world. They see genocide, senseless violence, plagues, and they blame demons or the devil himself. They believe that demonic spirits can actually possess a human body, and that only rituals of exorcism can lift the possessed from the darkest regions of the unexplained. In 1973, audiences filled movie theaters to see the portrayal of a girl possessed by the devil. Few people had seen the rare and clandestine Catholic ritual depicted in The Exorcist. Fewer still knew that the screenwriter based his story on a real exorcism. In the Washington DC suburb of Mount Rainier, Maryland, a playground now stands at 3210 Bunker Hill Road. The town long ago demolished the home that once stood there, but locals still call the corner the Devil's Lot. In January 1949, the 13-year-old boy living there seemed like a perfectly normal teenager. Attending school, concentrating on his studies, he was slightly built and unathletic. Preferring to stay indoors listening to his favorite programs on the radio, and playing board games. Suddenly, witnesses say, a series of unexplained events began. Scratching sounds erupted from the walls and the floors of the family's home. The boy's bed would shake, furniture would slide across the room, and dresser drawers would fly open. At first, his parents thought these strange occurrences were related to the boy's distress over the recent death of a favorite aunt. The aunt had schooled the boy in her beliefs about communicating with the dead. He had tried contacting her through a Ouija board. Perhaps they thought the strange events were messages from the dead. The parents turned first to their Lutheran minister for help and later to doctors, but nothing worked. Then, deep scratches began appearing on the boy's body that witnesses said the boy could not have made. The minister suggested the family contact a Catholic priest. They went to St. James Church in Mount Rainier, Maryland, to meet Father Albert Hughes. Hughes agreed to visit the boy. Later, over dinner at the
2: rectory, Hughes told fellow priest Frank Bober about the meeting. He said that the room would get extremely cold to the point that you would be shivering. The boy was obviously the one that was responsible for moving objects around the room, like the phone off the desk. There was uh, a plethora of vehement uh, statements against God and sacred things. Father Hughes, just 29 years
1: old at the time, was unprepared to deal with the bizarre force that seemed to be inhabiting
2: the boy. He was certainly befuddled by all of this in terms of, you know, contemporary scientific input. But eventually, he felt that, you know, there was no option, <laughs> that he was dealing with, you know, uh, satanic forces. Father Hughes
1: became convinced that exorcism, an arcane ritual requiring the approval of
2: the archbishop, was the answer. The right of exorcism was perfectly delineated. So his feeling was, well, I will follow this and it should work. The parents
1: checked the boy into Washington's Georgetown University Hospital. He was strapped to the bed. Father Hughes blessed the child, knelt at the bedside, and the ritual began. He prayed in Latin to the saints. Then, calling on God, he commanded that the boy be delivered from evil.
2: And the boy broke the strap and pulled out a spring and gashed Father Hughes' arm from the top to the wrist. Hughes, traumatized
1: both physically and mentally, abandoned the exorcism and left St. James to recover. The boy's parents, Worried now that their son could be violent, watched for new evidence of the supposedly evil presence. When freshly scratched markings on the boy's abdomen appeared, spelling the word Lewis, the parents believed they had a sign. They had relatives in St. Louis, where the boy's late aunt had lived, and they went there for help. Within days, the parents asked a Jesuit priest at nearby St. Louis University to perform an exorcism. It was early March, seven weeks into the boy's strange odyssey. The priest said before the archbishop would approve the exorcism, doctors would have to rule out all physical and mental causes for the boy's behavior. The doctors claimed they did. The archbishop chose the 52-year-old pastor of the university's church. Father William Bowdern as the exorcist. Bowdern had the required qualifications according to his superior. He was pious, prudent, and mature of years, just as the exorcism ritual dictated. Bowden asked a professor and fellow priest, Raymond Bishop, then 43 years old, to assist him. He also included Walter Halloran. I used to drive for Father Bowdern,
3: and, uh, One evening, just before supper, he came up to me and he asked, he said, "Uh, would you take me someplace tonight? So I said, sure.
1: A 26-year-old seminary student at the time, Father Halloran had no idea he was about to assist in an exorcism until Father Bowden began the prayers in the home of the boys' relatives.
3: I was kneeling at the foot of the bed, leaning on the bed with my elbows, and the bed started going up and down. I guess I looked a little surprised because he stopped and he just looked over and says, don't worry. So I went on with the prayers and then I think the next thing that happened is that uh, a bottle of holy water flew across the room. It was sitting on a bureau and it went flying across the room and crashed
1: into the wall. The two priests performed the ritual as Father Halloran and family members held the boy down. Night after night, the priests tried to pin relics of saints on the boy and place a crucifix in his hand. They sprinkled holy water and repeatedly recited the prayers of the exorcism rituals. During the prayers of
2: exorcism,
1: the child would become real
3: agitated and thrash around Holy water would always bring a reaction from the little boy, you know, a banker, uh, not wanting
1: the holy water sprinkled on him and that sort of thing. The boy also showed extreme anger toward the priests, according to the author of The Exorcist, William Peter Blatty.
4: The boy was able to spit copiously and prodigious distances with remarkable accuracy. He could spit across a room 20 to 25 feet and hit the priest in the eye and apparently was unerring. There were a
3: couple of times when the child would uh, make statements about people that were present. He addressed one of the priests, who I think was only there once, and he said, oh, he says, I'm surprised to see you in hell. He says, how did you ever
1: get down here? The ordeal usually ended well after midnight, and the boy would fall asleep. The priests recorded the night's events in a diary signed by all the witnesses. When the boy awakened, he would have no memory of what had occurred the night before. When the exorcism in St. Louis entered its third week, Father Bowdern suggested the boy should convert to Catholicism. You know what a sacrament is. The parents agreed, and the boy began to take religious instruction during the day in the rectory of the St. Louis University Church. Bowdern also decided to move the exorcism there, Now, closer to the church, the intensity of the boy's reactions increased. Bloody brandings again rose on his body in the form of words and figures.
3: There would be arrows, I remember
1: arrows.
3: Uh, Another time the word hell appeared. It was very, very uh, exact. You know, you didn't have to work your imagination to see what it was. But most of the time they'd be long welts so that go down his arms, down his legs, and across his abdomen, and on his chest. Uh, one time one of the spots looked something like the,
4: you know, the hooded drawings you have of the devil. In one account that was so vivid, Father Bowden recounted in his diary that while he was speaking to the boy, he happened to glance down at his leg and before his eyes, was as though this tiny, this was a 2 pronged pitchfork, ran all the way down from his inner upper thigh down to about the ankle, and drawing blood all the way down.
1: The ritual explicitly prohibits dialogue with the demon, but directs the exorcist to demand answers to two questions. What is your name? And what is the day and hour will depart? So you ask those, and then you pause,
3: for an answer, sometimes an answer is given. Like one time the child responded responded legion to what is your name.
1: At other times, the boy speaking in an unfamiliar voice identified himself as spite or the devil. One night, the voice reportedly offered to prove that it was the devil. I will awaken the boy, it said, and he will be pleasant. The boy instantly awoke, and he was calm. Later, the voice said, I will wake him up, and he will be awful. The boy woke up in a cursing fit. The voice would often taunt the priests, saying that a certain word had to be revealed before the spirit would leave. As closely as I can remember, these are the words.
3: I will not go until he says a certain word, and I will not him will not let him say the word.
1: By now, according to Halloran, the battle for the boy's soul seemed endless. Night after night, the exorcist would order them to return to the rectory, repeat the ritual, and confront the forces of the unexplained. By April 1949, The teenage boy, supposedly possessed by the devil, had undergone almost five weeks of nightly exorcism rites. The boy's physical condition had weakened dramatically, and the priests feared that he was becoming dangerously ill. As a precaution, the exorcist decided to move the boy again, this time to the Alexian Brothers Catholic Hospital near St. Louis University. No one noticed when someone placed a statue of St. Michael, the Archangel, in the room. The exorcist intensified his efforts to convert the boy to Catholicism. He wanted him to accept communion. Every time Father Bowder would go to give him a host, he'd start
3: acting very wildly and have to be held. He had knocked he'd the host out of Father Bowder's hand, and uh, he hit Father Bowder and... Uh, you know, then he grit his teeth and just refused to accept anything in his mouth. It must have taken two hours before he accepted
1: the host. Easter passed with no change in the boy's behavior. The exorcist felt an urgent need to try something different. He decided to ask the ritual's required questions in English, not Latin. At first, there was the usual mix of spitting and cursing. But then the boy cried out
3: he said St. Michael was present, St. Michael the Archangel was present, and then he described
1: it. In a deep, mature voice, the boy then said, Satan, I command you to leave in the name of Dominus. Leave now. The exorcist believed the boy had at last uttered the word of release, Dominus, Latin for Lord. Suddenly, according to Halloran, the boy struggled and his body contorted wildly. The child became very violent, and uh, there was a
3: huge noise, an explosion or report, and a very, very bright light in the sanctuary of the church, and that disappeared.
1: The boy fell into a deep sleep. When he awoke, he said the ordeal was over. He told of dreaming of a beautiful angel who carried a fiery sword and conquered demons. Then he fell back asleep. When the boy awoke again, all memories of his exorcism had vanished. The boy and his family returned to Maryland and converted to Catholicism. For nearly five decades, witnesses have protected his identity. Now, in his 60s, They say he has lived a rather ordinary life. He named his son, Michael. Did an evil spirit possess the boy? Did a medieval ritual free a child from the grasp of Satan? Father Bowder, now deceased, confirmed the exorcism in a letter
4: to author William Peter Blatty. He said, I can tell you one thing. The case that I was involved in was the real thing. I had no doubt about it then. I have no doubt about it now. The fact that the exorcism was
3: successful was that it shows that the power of God is certainly stronger than the power of the devil.
1: Skeptics dismiss Halloran's claim. Their explanations for the boy's actions do not include the devil. A professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, Henry Kelly, a former Jesuit seminarian says he believes the boy's so-called possessed behavior was brought on by the exorcism ritual itself.
2: As soon as he began the rite of exorcism, then the symptoms of possession began. And I uh, conclude from this uh, that the very rite of exorcism caused the symptoms of possession. This is a phenomenon that has happened in the past, That. Uh, Suggestion brings the symptoms on, and Suggestion cures the symptoms.
1: Blatty, however, says Father Bowdern tested that theory.
4: The exorcist would attempt to trick the boy, and instead of reading the the ritual in Latin, they would read Caesar's Gallic Wars to see what the response would be, and there would be a fiendish demonic. never happened.
1: Others speculate that the boy and his aunt had an inappropriate physical relationship and her death triggered his condition. Jesuit priest Francis Cleary, a professor of theology at St. Louis University, contends the exorcism is a story of incest and psychological dysfunction, (coughs) not possession.
0: It would seem to me from what I have read and uh, encountered that we're dealing with the case of a boy who has just moved into puberty who may well have had a prehistory of incestuous encounters with his aunt, it would be a mistake to take that experience of psychological sickness, disease, and paranormal phenomena, and without justification, throw that into a religious context. Leave religion out of it. It doesn't belong here.
1: Psychiatrist Dr. David Baer says new research about brain disorders may provide medical explanations for the boy's so-called possession.
4: The brain is a combination of electrical circuits and chemical systems. Uh, The way one brain cell signals another, in most cases, is by releasing a chemical. So abnormal chemicals in the brain can produce unusual states, changes in behavior, sense of possession, Dr. Baer says
1: the boy may have suffered from temporal lobe epilepsy.
4: Temporal lobe epilepsy can be caused by things like infections, encephalitis and infection of the brain, and that can be temporary. Temporal lobe seizures often begin in puberty.
1: Baer thinks seizures in the temporal lobe, which is connected to what's known as the autonomic nervous system, may also explain the skin welts. And he's skeptical about the accounts of words spelled out on the boy's body.
4: And I do wonder, in the case of this young boy, whether some of the people who observed the welts and the changes in his skin added their own interpretation of what they saw. Halloran
1: believes the welts, like the boy's so-called possession, were real and cannot be explained by modern science. I think that anyone could uh, suffer
3: possession. And I think it's basically because of the power the Satan has and then also
4: inherent weaknesses that we have. My own feeling is that this particular case was an authentic case of possession, whatever that is, and that the boy had lucid moments in which he was not under that influence, but during which he did what this psychic event. Here were priests all around him, conducting this grand and formal and impressive rite of exorcism, witnesses in the room. I'm guessing that he just played along for a portion of it, but that other than these spells, he he was in the grip of something inexplicable.
1: Neither mental illness nor neurological disease can possibly explain the accounts of the shaking bed or the flying drawers. Were the 48 priests, doctors and family members mistaken when they attested to the otherworldly events they witnessed? Skeptics say, yes, and argue that the roots of the boy's behavior are in his brain. Believers say the true cause stares at us from the molten depths of the unexplained.
0: <clears throat> so, I find that documentary absolutely fascinating, especially with the last three people on there who are not present, who say, well, I believe it was incest. Well, I believe it was epilepsy. I believe the rite of exorcism caused all this and it just doesn't add up. Before anything happened as far as an exorcism ritual, what happened? The boy's bed shook, drawers were being removed from the bureau, objects moving around the room, room getting cold. None of those add up and that's why if you just look for a natural explanation to things, you're going to find gaps. There's something that's missing, and that's why Christianity makes sense. And what we read in God's Word is what we see in God's world. Youth, you're heading out to your small groups for discussion. And other time, the rest of us are sticking around. Let's take a break, stand up and stretch. We'll take a two-minute break here, and then we'll throw it open to questions if you got them.